John Baer is a columnist with the Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia Daily News, and Philly.com. A Harrisburg native who has covered the Capitol for decades sat down with me recently to talk about his many years of covering Pennsylvania politics. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President and CEO of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs, and uh, I am downtown Harrisburg uh, with John Baer, a longtime uh, political reporter and columnist uh, with the Philadelphia Daily News, Philadelphia Inquirer, and Philly.com. Uh, John, to be good to be with you. Hey, Matt, thanks. And I got to say, I love the title of, of your, of your <laughs> podcast. Brews and Views. great title. Uh, right. I'm, well, I like good coffee. I like good beer. And so let's combine who, it with... Yeah, I, that's I mean, right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your uh, taking time and uh, to, to sit do. down. Um, John, you've been, uh, you know, called the, the senior, maybe seasoned is better. Seasoned uh, is se- always <laughs> better, yes. <laughs> but you've been around Harrisburg for a long, long time. Long time. Uh, seen a lot, and I want to I hear about the things that you've seen and what you see going forward as well. But uh, before we get into that, uh, let's get to know John Bear, uh, the person, a bit. Uh, are, are you a native Pennsylvanian? Do you, were uh, you born and raised it's, here? It's worse than that, man. Oh, no. It's, it's, I'm a native Harrisburger. Oh, my goodness. Uh, born and raised. Couldn't uh, get out of the city, huh? Couldn't get out of the city, no matter how hard I tried. <laughs> <laughs> born and raised. Grew up um, in a neighborhood, um, in a row house in a neighborhood called Allison Hill. Okay. Um, which is now pretty wow. much a war zone. Right. Uh, but it, I mean, it was a nice middle-class neighborhood when I was growing up. Um, my father uh, was a reporter for the Patriot News uh, and, in fact, preceded me in the Capitol Newsroom um, where he was there for the Patriot for many, many years. And we missed each other by about a decade. Okay. Um, I joined the Patriot in uh, the early 70s, 1972, and he had retired uh, about a decade uh, before that. So, so you grew up in Harrisburg. Your dad was a reporter. Was that his uh, his yeah, career, his entire life? Yes. Okay. Um, he, um, in fact, I mean, I've been in that Capitol newsroom, which you know well, uh, from the time I was maybe eight or ten years old, because he would come down. He always said he made more money freelancing in those days mm. as a reporter. So on Sunday, he would, after mass, we'd go to St. Pat's Cathedral right okay, across right, the street yeah, from the Little Lamps. Yeah. And uh, walk up to the newsroom, and he'd go to work, and I'd play on the phones. And uh, when I tell people, you know, that I played on the phones in the newsroom as a child, they usually say, well, it's nice to see things never change. (laughs) (laughs) You have brothers and sisters? Only Uh, child. Okay, only child. And uh, what, did your mom uh, work outside of the house? She, not until uh, maybe when I went off to uh, high school or college, uh, she actually worked as a clerk for the liquor control board. Okay, Uh, okay. And I think, you know, did it long enough to get a pension, and that was about it. Uh Uh-huh. There was ever a serious career path there. So, so she she remembers the days of uh, having the booze and hooch locked up uh, behind a cage. And oh, the, uh, well, I remember. Oh, those you days. do, yeah. Abs- yeah, absolutely, I do. In fact, uh, you'll enjoy this. In those days, uh, the Capitol Newsroom Christmas parties would be the the highlight. Would be when people from the LCB would bring over baskets of Christmas cheer to share with the news reporters. Uh huh. And I remember vividly our row house uh, during the holidays when you opened our front door, there would very often be a bottle with a bow on top 
that was a gift from, I presume, a lobbyist or somebody from uh -huh. the LCB or something like that. It was a whole different world, you know, <laughs> back then, Matt, you know. So, so w you went off to, to college. You, you did leave Harrisburg for that. I so, did uh, leave uh, Harrisburg for that, yeah. Where, uh, where'd you go? Um, undergrad, I went to Mount St. Mary's University in uh, beautiful Emmitsburg, Maryland. Uh -huh. um, at the time, it was all men. Um, it, it became co-ed many, many years ago. Uh, but I went there for undergrad, um, got a master's degree at Temple, and uh, did a couple of fellowships. So I was in—I I did live in Washington for a year uh, on a congressional fellowship in the mid to late '70s. So growing up with your father as a reporter, did you say I want to be like Dad? Was that your? I, I uh, probably thinking? didn't say yeah. I want to be like that, but there was always something about having a newspaper in the house and reading a newspaper every morning and listening to him and when he would go to national conventions he would always bring back memorabilia from those conventions mm -hmm. um, I remember reading newspapers when for example the Pennsylvania reporters would meet presidential candidates on the train in Philadelphia and travel across the state with them to Pittsburgh and so I would see a byline and a dateline uh, by John H. Bear en route with Stevenson. Uh -huh. um, and so there, you know, there was some kind of energy uh -huh. and spark there that probably took place. But I did, uh, Matt, uh, to, to fill out the whole thing, I did teach right out of college uh, for three years. I taught at Trinity High School, uh, Catholic High School on the West Shore. The other shore. The right? other yeah, shore, yeah. right. I went to Bishop McDevitt High School. Uh -huh. But oh, no. So you went to kind of the, uh, the, the competition over there, huh? Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and the reason was that uh, people after... I was in the last Bishop McDevitt class that had students from both shores. So th there were like 550 kids in my class. There were over 2,000 at McDevitt at that time. So we were the, the, the last and largest class uh, to graduate. And if you started at McDevitt, even if you were from the West Shore, you could finish at McDevitt. Both of my sons uh, went to Trinity. Both were uh, very good athletes there. Both played on championship teams there. And both went on to play uh, college uh, college sports as well at the Division three level mm -hmm. because that way they, they knew they would get no money so their father would, <laughs> would have to freelance a lot more than he, than he otherwise would have. Um, but uh, I loved teaching. Uh, I did it for three years and coached uh, two sports. Really enjoyed it, but I was... You know that's a that's a heavy load. So did you go to did you go to college uh, to get a, no, a teaching de no, degree no, or a journalism uh, no, or what? Now we're going to get into yeah, some, <laughs> some social stuff here. When I was graduating from Mount St. Mary's uh, was the height of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. All deferments uh, I had applied to uh, uh, to law school. All deferments were rejected for anything but medical school. Uh, I knew I couldn't get into <laughs> medical school. Uh, but at the time, if you taught in a private school, a Catholic school particularly, uh, you did not need a teaching certificate. Mm -hmm. I had never taken an education course in my life. Um, but you would get a deferment if, in this case, the diocese said, yes, we need this teacher. So I got a deferment and taught for three years. And then the lottery came into effect. My number was sufficiently low enough that I was out of danger uh, for being drafted. And uh, that's when I went to work for the Patriot right after that. Okay. So you decided, uh, done with teaching, want to go uh, into yeah. journalism? Right. And were you... And it, and it was just uh -huh. the thing. It's not, it's not that I was done with it. I mean, again, I, 
I still hear from students yeah. that I had oh, yeah. in the early 70s uh -huh. uh, and coached. And it's just, but when you're teaching a full load, coaching two sports and going to graduate school, you just spread real thin. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just felt that uh, it, it was time, time to move on. And uh, I was always attracted to journalism and loved, loved those first few years of the Patriot. So, so you, did you come in to do the Capitol beat? Was that your, no, uh, what you no, covered? I came, in, I came in as, a, as totally a cub reporter, but I came in at a fortuitous time to be in the news business because right after I started was the flood Agnes uh -huh. of 72, uh -huh. which provided for news stories for years. Uh, because it was a devastating flood um, and it had a lot of implications for a lot of this area. Uh, and in 1972, if you know your history, mm -hmm. Watergate began. Mm -hmm. So politics suddenly became uh, a, big, a big national thing. So it was a great time to start in the business. And I mean, I got a running start because suddenly we had more than enough stuff to cover. Um, so it was... It was you know, birthed by flood and, uh, and, and fire from Washington. So. Uh -huh. And so when did you then uh, shift into your political coverage? And maybe what, uh, you know, what, where did you have any political interests, uh, you know, always, growing? Yeah. Okay. I, always right. had, I always had political interests because that's what my dad covered. Mm -hmm. He covered politics. And it didn't take long. I mean, I quickly learned. I mean, I did some environmental reporting for a while. Uh, but it became very clear that, w that the thing driving all policies... Uh, was were politics, mm -hmm. and so I w w naturally just kind of made the shift and started writing about politics um, for the Patriot, and uh, then, as I said, I won this congressional fellowship for journalists to spend a year in Washington, where you study at Brookings, and you spend a half a year on the House in the House side and a half a year in the Senate side. Mm -hmm. So you go and you interview with people to see with members to see who, you know if you can join their staff for six months, and I did that, um, and again fortuitously was hired by Mo Udall, who that year, 1976, was running for president. So I got to be on the ground floor of starting a presidential campaign and working with his press secretary and meeting all the big wigs in Washington press corps. And on the Senate side, worked for uh, Bill uh, Proxmire, uh, who was the author of the Golden Fleece Award, which was a real <laughs> government watchdog thing. Uh -huh. And the joy in that, Matt, was any time anyone on his staff, including me, would call any agency you could hear the quake on the other end of the, the other end of the, because you know Bill was coming after him for something. So, so, so that, that was a great experience. And uh, I guess maybe that's the start of your equal opportunity skewering uh, yeah, that you do so. today. Yeah, yes, yeah, probably so. Yeah, so so uh, you you go on at the Patriot News, uh, mm -hmm. start covering some of the political stuff. Uh, I mean, I know that you've seen a dramatic transformation of the news industry Ugh. since that beginning time. I mean, even in the last 15 years that I've been down here, yeah. I've seen it where you've, you know, there is no TV up there anymore. Right. Uh, very little radio. Uh, there aren't the, the, the newspapers um, in many ways that used to be here or have multiple reporters. That's right. I mean, it's, it's uh, significantly different today than when you started. Well, what I tell people is there, there is, for example, nowhere in the Capitol complex where you can buy a newspaper. Um, <laughs> When I started, there were newsstands virtually in every major building, and they carried papers from all over the state. The Capitol Newsroom is half the size in terms of bodies mm -hmm. uh, than when I started there. And uh, y y you're right, the, the, the presence and the coverage has diminished uh, to what I'd consider almost a dangerous extent. 
Well, John, so uh, uh, you've had a long career. You've been yep. uh, doing this for many, many decades. Uh, I don't know of anybody else who comes even close to the amount of time you've spent in the Capitol. Uh, you must uh, have some stories that uh, are worth retelling. Well, that, uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are some of the highlights uh, that you've seen over the years? Well, I mean, first, covering virtually every um, Republican and Democratic convention since 88, um, uh, there's tons of stories uh-huh. out, out of those. Just the exposure to the, the national process up close and personal like that was great. The characters that I've been fortunate enough to follow and cover, um, it's an extensive list and it's a lot of fun. A lot of them went to prison <laughs> and, uh, and a lot of them were just a joy to be around. I mean, Ed Randell, um, I knew him when he was the district attorney in Philadelphia, when he was mayor in Philadelphia, when he ran for governor. Loved to campaign with him. The guy is just a very unusual politician mm-hmm. and person. Mm-hmm. Um, Arlen Specter was uh, one of my favorite people to cover. And a lot of people don't know. He has, he had one of the best and driest senses of humor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, just, again, a lot of fun to travel with, uh, fun to cover because Arlen was for everything, you know? I mean, it depending, depending on the issue, depending on the day, he could make an argument for or against just about anything mm-hmm. that, that was mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. Very, very hard worker, very, very smart guy, and uh, uh, always enjoyed that. Unusual things I did that a lot of people don't get to do. I was a witness um, at the last execution in Pennsylvania because when there is an execution, we, we haven't had one since the 90s, the um, department chooses, uh, they have a pool of reporters, and the region where the crime was committed uh, gets a double hit. So uh, uh, this was a, um, a person by the name of Gary Heidnick, uh, who was convicted of uh, murdering and cannibalizing several women in North Philadelphia. And I was chosen to be a media witness uh, for his execution. Mm. And to sit and watch somebody die is an unusual experience. Um, My memory of that was constantly eyeing him and the clock because after the execution, media people go and brief the rest of the media who's covering it. And then I have my own deadline to meet in, in writing about the experience. So... That was very unusual. I also had the the privilege of sitting in the U.S. Senate gallery for a portion of the Clinton impeachment trial. Mm. Um, And again, I mean, you'd look over and Tom Brokaw would be sitting over there. Uh, The action on the floor, of course, was fabulous to cover. When people say that very often journalism can be the front seat to history, um, that's no joke. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so um, it's, I, I love journalism. I, I, I always have. I mourn for what it's become um, because it isn't what it once was. Mm. Uh, it isn't what it could be. Um, and um, why, do you, why do you think that? Is it the business model? Yeah, it's or the is business it the envir- model. Okay. Yeah, it's the uh-huh. business model. I mean, I, I liken it to the U.S. Post Office. Mm. You, you know, I mean, who thought that, I mean, who, who doesn't appreciate that you can put a letter in the mail to anywhere in the world and somebody will come and pick it up at your house and deliver it. And what, I mean, what do you think that costs? Yeah. And, you know, people put their stamp on there and then away it goes. And I think the two, the two operations are similar because 
journalists, journalism used to be owned and run by, by journalists. Mm -hmm. And what a journalist cares about is the next day. You know, you, you look for the next day's deadline for that day, and then what are you doing the next day? And so you don't tend to think five years out, ten years out, what, you know, what's the model to keep this going? And I think the post office got caught in the yeah. same thing. They had to deliver the mail every day. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't get to think about, well, in the future, there's going to be the Internet. Right, There's right, going to be right. email. You don't have to put a stamp on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so we got caught uh, as an industry uh, by technology. And technology has served us well once we kind of got a hold of it, but it took us a while mm -hmm. to get a hold of it. Well, and that's the business side of things, uh, but it might be a good way to shift to, what do you think about this, uh, you know, uh, the trouble in the media, right, uh, That of the distrust uh, that's yeah, out there, yeah. that's been fomented certainly from uh, President Trump, but I think it was certainly there before, um, you know, despite having many more outlets, uh, it seems that there's less and less, you know, trust that, of what the media does. And honestly, that's part of the problem. People get information from so many sources uh -huh. now at so many platforms and so many different tilts. Um, it, I can tell you from a personal, it, you talk to any journalist who has been in the business for more than 20 years and they will tell you what I'm going to tell you and that is that I always felt that journalism was at its heart a public service. Mm -hmm. That the job of journalism is to get people as close to the truth as possible, no matter what the issue is. Who knows what the truth is, mm -hmm. but get people as close to it as you possibly can. And there was always, you could feel sort of a respect when you told people, I'm a, I'm a reporter, I'm a journalist, um, because we, we then were viewed as honest brokers. Mm -hmm. That is gone. Uh, even if Do you, you think it's because of uh, the, just the way that people that get into the business now? Or, I, I mean, help me understand. I think it's a combination. Okay. I think okay. it's a combination. I think that people's attitudes uh, towards towards the news media are partly driven by the fact that a lot of news media is now biased it's, mm -hmm. it's slanted one way or the other there's a lot more um, agenda opinion kind of reporting than there used to be yeah. in my view now yeah. we're not, I'm not talking about back in colonial times because then it, it was kind of like it is now yeah. right I mean well that's why you I mean, had named the Republican right yeah. the Democrat I mean it yeah. was clearly right. a partisan right. and, uh, and look you know as well as I do there were always newspapers who were more conservative sure. than others and more liberal than mm -hmm. others and that's still the case but we've all kind of been lumped into the same class which is can't trust them uh, they're up to something they're promoting one party or another, mm -hmm. or one candidate or another. And it's a struggle um, just to get people to trust and believe any kind of media today. Now, you're a columnist, so yeah. you get to have your opinion, your bias opinion. to show. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and and how, how has that changed over the years? I mean, uh, you're, I think you're a pretty cynical person, skeptical. Fair enough. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you see anything good that's going on? I mean, uh, that, uh, that we could talk about all day about the problems in Harrisburg. Yeah. And, maybe, and I would like to hear some of the things that you think we really need to do that you think would improve, uh, whether it's transparency or just uh, functionality, because I think that that's one of our, our bigger problems. You see the kind of the pollers sucking people to them, yeah, right? Uh, right? And there isn't the kind of the sitting down of, of people from opposite sides and saying, look, we got to have, uh, we're going to compromise, yeah. right? I got to walk away from this table, uh, with something you do as well. Let's figure that out. Right. 
Um, but uh, given your cynicism, skepticism, yeah. all that, uh, is there anything that, that you see as, hey, you know what? We're not dying here. You know, the, the world is not coming to an end politically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we tend to go in cycles um, when there are problems, when there are corruption scandals, when there are, when there's really bad, harmful partisanship. Um, and, and over time, it, it just kind of evens itself out uh, like, like most of life. I do take solace um, after every election when we get like a few new people uh, in the legislature and if you take the time to get to know them, why they're there mm -hmm. and where they came from and what they'd like to do, it's, it's encouraging. I mean, I, you know, s some of these new people that are, are young and bright and my only fear and my only caveat is that they don't get frustrated and say, well, this place can't change, yeah. there's a culture here that is on ongoing. Um, but I, I take solace from that. I take solace from people who get into the business that really don't need to be into the business. Yeah. Um, I think that they are the kind of people that ought to be in public life. Yeah. People that don't need the job. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, Joe Torcella, the, the state treasurer, is a prime example. Um, here's a guy who's a Rhodes Scholar, ran the Constitution Center in Philadelphia, um, worked on the Olympics, I think, did a, did a ton of things in, in private life and, and in public life, and he wanted to be treasurer of Pennsylvania. And when I heard that, I said, what, what, you, what are you kidding me? I mean, you, you ought to be running for the United States Senate or something. And he said, no, I have some ideas that I think I, you know, that I'd like to do. And he's done some very positive things with regard to education uh, funding and retirement funding uh, in, a, in a big, broad, general way and not in a partisan way. Mm -hmm. um, Scott Wagner, believe it or not, is somebody that I regard as one of those people who doesn't need the job, right. uh, is a self-made man, and w whatever you think of his politics or his ideology, I get the sense, truly believes that there's a different way to do this, and he's willing to give it a try. And look... And he spent a lot of money along lot, the way. Spent yeah, a lot trying of his to own money it. to do yeah. it, yeah. And the same for Tom Wolfe. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't need it. Uh, spend his own money. Uh, it's a mess up here, you know, <laughs> and I told him that when he was running as a candidate the first time. I and I told Ed Rendell that. I said, you don't know what you're getting yeah. into, and I'll tell you why. When, when you're the mayor of a city like Philadelphia, everybody, and he said, I, I dealt with city council. For yeah. Well, yeah. I said, Ed, look, <laughs> city council, love him or hate him, th th there's a common goal there. I mean, w what needs to be done in a big city, everybody knows and everybody agrees. And there are issues like poverty and there are issues mm -hmm. like crime, and so you attack them as best you can. And generally one party. And generally yeah. one party, yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. And if there are Republicans there, they're not Republicans, yeah, right, right? right? They're Arlen Specter and Thatcher Longstreth, <laughs> right? They're, they're, they're very moderate Republicans. So but when you get here, there are Republicans here. Um, and, and the state has very different needs depending on where you're from, very different ideologies depending on where you're from, and a very different set of problems. So to get everybody on the same page to do common things is really, really tough. And that's, that's not truly appreciated by either side mm -hmm. of the ideology. I don't think people in Philadelphia appreciate that, and I don't think people in Elk County appreciate mm -hmm. that. So when Tom Wolf was running and you're talking to him like kind of, why, why would you want to go do this? Yeah. Uh, what's your assessment of him? Here we are, you know, three years into his uh, first term. Do you think that uh, um, he's done a, a good job, bad job? Uh, well, I mean, I think he has, he has done an adequate job um, on a couple of levels. Um, I think that 
foregoing a salary, foregoing a pension, foregoing health benefits sends a message. Mm -hmm. And Scott Wagner does the same thing, and I think that sends a message that if you don't need it, don't take it. Um, and neither of them do. I think from a policy standpoint, the governor obviously is to the left of everybody that he deals with up here. And, but he, and he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing, and, but he has pulled back to get at least something. I mean, mm -hmm. he said he wanted to get more money for education. He's done that. Um, he'll be able to run on, a, on an advertising platform that says, look, I'm the first governor in history to make some changes in the Liquor Control Board. I'm the first governor to do some changes in the pension Despite uh, being opposed issue. to both of those uh, originally, being opposed to both originally. <laughs> I mean, you you live. I voted learn, against yeah. them before I voted for right. them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, got it. Well, that doesn't isolate him as a politician, no, as you well That's know. right. So, uh, do you think that do you think that given his moderation on these things, of course, where he vetoed pension reform right. and liquor, you know, full liquor privatization, right. yeah, initially uh, embraced them. Uh, do you think he we he can come back in 2019 if he's reelected? Uh, with the same attitude he had in 2015, when I don't. no, I don't. I think that's I think that's done, and I think he's learned that, uh, and I think he he is willing to make some incremental gains in areas that are important to him, um, and and try to uh, promote. I mean, he's been he's been pretty good on transparency issues. He's been pretty good on um, uh, reaching out uh, to the general public. His there's a quality about him that. Uh, can be interpreted as, well, he seems a little soft, um, or he seems a, a little um, off the off the fight, and th I'm not sure. I don't think that's the case, but I but I do see how it gets portrayed that way, and he and I have had discussions about. You know, well, I've done this and I've done that, and you know, you haven't written about it, or your tone has been against that, and. I, I've told him, I said, Governor, look, it's not my job, it's not the job of the press to be your cheerleader or your promoter. I said, that, you know, that's your job. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to, um, you know, impinge on anybody, but I, I don't think he has been served as well as he could have been served by people getting his own message out and getting his own positions out. Generally, I think he's been. A, I think he is a very decent human being, um, and it's good to have somebody like that in position of power. Uh, and I think he's learned an awful lot through the three years of his uh, of his uh, tenure uh, thus far. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what Pennsylvania voters think later this year. Indeed, it will. Uh, do you have uh, a handicap for uh, um, the race uh, coming in November? Yeah, I mean, by all accounts, Matt, y you know as well as I do, Democrats are expected to do well across the country, and um, Pennsylvania has a lot more Democrats, um, um, close to a million, uh, than registered Republicans. And so there's a, there's a pretty good baseline to start. Plus, to, to oust somebody, and you know there's only been one governor who has not been reelected. Right. To oust somebody, you have to have a reason to dislike that person. And I'm not sure there's a good reason to dislike Governor Wolf. So I give him an advantage going in. Um, you don't know what politics these days is day to day. Windows, oh, open, yeah. windows open, issues come up. You don't know how they're going to react to them. I always say that, uh, do you know who was winning the presidential election in September of 2008? 
uh, John McCain was. Yeah. Uh, right. So you never right. know that's how right. those winds change what uh, what comes your way. No, that's uh, right. So John, you know, one of the pivotal moments, at least in the last, uh, you know, two decades now, uh, was the the pay raise. Yeah. Uh, um, do you do you see that as a, a turning point in it, what's it really, happened? It really yeah. was. Uh, it really was, Matt. That's a great point. Um, prior to the pay raise, the relationship between the press and the legislature was relatively calm, with the exception of any time a corruption thing would pop up. Um, after that was pay- an isolated incident, right? Yeah, you usually. The person usually or, yeah, yeah. Um, the pay raise really drove a wedge uh, between those of us who were covering day-to-day stuff. And I was, uh, that year, I was not a columnist yet. Um, because, I mean, we just went crazy on it. Oh, yeah. Um, and just beat the living hell out of them <laughs> over and over and over and over. Uh, and those wounds opened up, you know. Uh, it, it affected the relationship between lawmakers and, and the media. And it affected ancillary things like, like the annual gridiron, you know, an off-the-record, right. su- supposedly comedic yeah. event. yeah. Uh, their interest in participation uh, dropped dramatically during that period, and, and I think that that's part of the reason. Well, I know we've got uh, over two dozen retirements this year, which yeah, is a lot. It is. Uh, but back in 06, it was nearly 60 yeah. uh, people either voluntarily or involuntarily, or involuntarily re- yeah. retired. Including, including leaders, as yes. you remember. Yeah, yeah. well, some of the uh, you know characters uh, of... Uh, uh, the the capital right. uh, certainly were um, some survived some didn't yeah um, but uh, it seems that we're even a lot of the retirements happening today are folks that have been around quite a long time and yeah. uh, right uh, the the amount of turnover that we've seen when I, I'll quiz people from time to time I say you know what do you think the turnover's been over the last twelve years and most people think ah twenty thirty percent they're shocked to learn that it's over 70, nearly 80% of the entire General Assembly has turned over since 02. Right. Uh, and it's uh, it's a significant change. Uh, I don't know if it's getting better um, or getting worse, or <laughs> I guess that remains to be seen. It does remain, it does remain <laughs> to be seen. Um, and, y- you know, the thing, the thing about the pay raise was that was something that everybody in the general public could understand. Uh, it, it, it wasn't a policy issue. It wasn't an ideological disagreement on, on a major issue. Uh, it, it was just greed. Mm-hmm. And everybody got it, and everybody responded like at no other time in my career. Um, there's been nothing like it, uh, and ho- hopefully it uh, sent them a message that will last for a while. Well, I think that they thought, uh, well, we weathered this in the 90s when we yeah. uh, increased pay, but at that time... Um, when they did that, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you had uh, a couple of things. One, you didn't have uh, the ability of social media uh, and the, the connections of the Internet, uh, as well as uh, talk radio. Uh, yeah. I know that that was just the hot topic in certain parts of the state. And you could actually overlay where you had lots of newspaper coverage, talk radio coverage, uh, and that was where you saw the dramatic ousting of uh, members of the General Assembly. Well, that's right. And, and the other interesting thing about that period was that in Philadelphia and, and most of the Southeast uh, media market, it was not a big issue. I mean, people were not outraged and coming up here with pitchforks because, I mean, look, I mean, city council members were, were six-figure-a-year 
it's salaried and so a little bump in the salary up here which was wasn't close to six figures it was like yeah well so what um but you get outside of the southeast in that philly media market and and brother it was oh yeah light the candles you know (laughs) indeed running for the hills Uh, john what are you reading right now what's uh what's on your Um, uh, i tend to read what what ha- the trouble I get into is the New Yorker magazine, which has just the best writing <laughs> anywhere. They just stack up, you know, uh-huh. because I, w- I say, I got to read that. I want to read that. Um, I tend to read a lot of fiction because I spend so much time reading nonfiction uh, that's job related. So um, I just recently read the Ward book, this African-American woman uh, who won her second National Book Award. I think she's still in her 40s, um, a novel called um, Sing Unburied Sing. Uh, which is terrific. Um, and Mark Halpern, the good Mark Halpern, not the bad Mark, Mark <laughs> Halpern, also one of my longtime favorite authors. His current book is something called uh, Paris in the Present Tense. And his writing is gorgeous. Uh, I just love reading uh, people that can write like that. And Amor Tolls, who wrote A Gentleman from Moscow, uh, he's only written two novels, A Gentleman from Moscow and The Rules of Civility. Um, is such a beautiful writer. I had the opportunity to talk with him, and he told me that each book took four years. And I said, Amor, as a newspaper person, the idea of... <laughs> Writing a story for four years. <laughs> and I said, how do you do that? And he said, well, I, I write a sentence, and then I think how I can make that sentence better and I'll rewrite it and rewrite oh, it. Oh, my. And, yeah. Uh, but he, he, is a, he is a fabulous writer. He has, um, he's just starting another novel and has options out to Netflix and HBO for the first two books to do television series. If you haven't read anything that he's written, either novel, I, I highly recommend uh, because he's, he's just terrific. Well, John, I appreciate your joining me here on Brews and Views. I know that uh, I appreciate that... Uh, politicians uh, don't like to see you coming because you don't let them off the hook. That's generally true. Matt, before we go, let me ask ask you a question. Sure. You asked me where I came from. How did somebody from Iowa City, (laughs) educated at Cornell, University of San Diego, PhD, from uh, Walden University in Minneapolis. Almost PhD, Almost yes, PhD yes, yes. In Minneapolis. How do you end up in Harrisburg? Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Pennsylvania, as a former history teacher, I started out my career teaching oh. uh, middle school, high school history, uh, was passionate about uh, the founding of this country, uh, was a Civil War buff as well. Oh. Uh, so there were a lot of attractions to coming to Pennsylvania, but in particular being uh, what was uh, the sixth, now the fifth largest state, Uh, the opportunity uh, to hopefully influence uh, a big state in this country that can, it's still the Keystone State. Uh, To me, there's a tremendous opportunity to make sure that the greatest uh, republic in the history of mankind survives. And I think it starts in the states. Uh, That's what's kept me here. It's why I uh, do what I do. Good answer. Uh, Well, thank you. Thanks for asking. (laughs) All right. John, thanks for joining me here. A pleasure. Thank you. listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.